Hey folks, I'm Alex Dowd. And I'm Katie Reif. Today on the show, we're talking about video stores, those relics of a bygone age of physical media before streaming sites took the brick and mortar out of movie renting. With the help of a special guest, we'll talk about the past and the future of the video store industry and our memories of working the counter. Welcome to Film Club. So, Katie, a few weeks ago on the show, we talked about movie theaters mm-hmm. um, and our nostalgia uh, for them during this very strange time where none of us can go and sit in, in, in a darkened theater and watch a movie. Today, we're going to be talking about a, a kind of different relic of uh, the movie watching experience, and that's video stores. Yeah, unfortunately, video stores have, were on the decline before COVID even started. Yeah, exactly. I mean, movie theaters will probably bounce back, and movie theaters, uh, I think we're going, uh, you know, uh, despite some projections of, of them uh, taking a dip in attendance, uh, movie the- movie theaters were still in, in okay shape, um, and will probably be in the future. Video stores, obviously, have had a different uh, a, a different legacy and have had different troubles over the years. There, there aren't as many remaining. Um, to talk about this, though, I wanted to introduce, uh, we actually have a very special guest on the show today, and he is a regular AV Club contributor and the former co-host of Film Club. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's welcome Ignati Vishnevetsky. Hi, guys. Yay. Hey. <laughs> it's always a fun day when Ignati's on. <laughs> Live from my living room. <laughs> How you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm I'm excited to talk about uh, what was the center of my life for uh, I think from my late teens until around my mid twenties. Yeah, uh, we should mention too that Ignati recently wrote a piece, and I, th- I think this is uh, we'll we'll get into some of these experiences as well on the show today. But he recently wrote a piece about his time at Odd Obsession here in Chicago. Uh, very famous uh, Chicago video store that uh, has recently and sadly gone under because of the pandemic. Katie, as you mentioned that uh, you mentioned that video stores were kind of endangered long before the pandemic. Um, yeah, it's been a long, slow decline. I feel it's it's gone in phases. Where first you had the corporate takeover of the independent video stores, and you know this is a very unscientific, personal uh, guess, but in my memory, that happened in like the mid to late '90s. And then you had the rise of Netflix as a mail service, and I actually mm-hmm. worked at a video store that uh, launched its own um, discs by mail subscription service because that was the big thing at the time then. And that was about, around about 2010. And then streaming services really took off. And um, I think it's streaming services that really have put video stores um, on on a, on a true decline. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think that... Uh... In the, in the mid 2000s there was already sign of, signs of trouble with with Netflix and also with Redbox um, mm-hmm. which were sort of uh, turning the video rental experience into something a little bit uh, uh, one could say quicker and easier um, or and less then, personal <laughs> less personal yeah it was just uh, okay here stick your card in and you can get some new release you know uh, and a lot of the rental chains were always built on pushing new releases anyway um, but Redbox sort of took uh, t- took even more of that out of the equation. I'd say that that model is part of the reason why, I mean, I have this theory. I, I think the video rental industry was, it was kind of always a bubble. And I think it has, it has something to do with the new release thing. I think video stores were, and this might sound strange as someone who does tend to romanticize video stores. And I do have 
I think we all have very fond memories of them, and I think we we think of them as uh, as great and you know at their best they're great institutions and the kind of institutions we need. But I think that video stores were well. L- let me explain. Right, um, if you run a blockbuster or something you have a very sizable percentage of your customers who are not really there to go to a video store. They're there to rent Gladiator, or they're there to see Gladiator as quickly as possible, right? And that's why you have 100 copies of it on VHS. And once they find a faster way to see this one thing, they're going to go there, you know? Um, And that that kind of always made it, it was always a a very precarious industry, because the moment someone was going to come up with a faster and more convenient way um, to see just a handful of, of titles, you know, and initially that was stuff like Redbox, you know, and to a, and rent by mail. It was, I think it was always going to, always going to be kind of a bubble like that. Um, because in order to keep a video store, you needed a large selection, but the reality was that a very large, uh, you know, percentage of customers for a chain video store really just consisted of people who, you know, if they were offered Redbox would definitely just go there. I wonder, too, if the uh, decline in price of, you know, physical media itself um, possibly played a role in this, because, you know, when video stores first launched, it would be seventy nine ninety nine for a VHS. But by the time you get to the Redbox era, you can buy a DVD for six or seven dollars at, you know, Walmart or Target or whatever. I mean, it's I can't imagine how much money I paid for VHS tapes in the 90s as like a kid, <laughs> you know, uh, especially once you adjusted for inflation. You know, you were even on sale, you get something for like ten dollars. And that's, you know, that was like later, you know, if you adjust that to like 15, that was the price of a pretty decent feature packed DVD. Yeah, totally. Uh, It's interesting. I think you're touching on something, too, here, which is that um, the era of the video store was really not very long, you know? No, it was. Uh, Yeah. Like, like we all grew up in the nineties and, uh, so it, it's still, I don't, I don't want to speak for both of you, but it, it's still hard for me to imagine a world without video stores because of how prominent they were to, uh, to movie watching in the nineties and to my own, my own relationship to movies and my own, my own movie education. Like the video store loomed very large in my life yeah. at, a, at a certain point, but they were not. I mean, they basically, I mean, video stores were introduced in, they they popped up in the 1970s, um, uh, sort of during the format war between VHS and Betamax. um, And they kind of became a regular thing in in the 80s, um, particularly the early 80s. uh, by later that decade, there was there was somewhere in the range of about twenty five thousand video stores in the United States alone. Um, and uh, I looked this up last night, actually. But in nineteen eighty seven, uh, revenue from home video surpassed the yearly box office for the first time. Hmm. So there, there was a, there was a very short period of time that video stores were sort of king, and it was basically from the it was basically from the early eighties until maybe the late nineties. Um, uh, Blockbuster Video began in nineteen eighty five. Um, Blockbuster obviously was uh, through most of its run the the, the kind of uh, world leader in in video rental chains. Um, the McDonald's of the, uh, of, <laughs> yeah. of the video convenience <laughs> world. Um, it's uh, it, it it basically started to peter out in the in the 2000s as we discussed earlier um, around 2014. Well, I think it died. I mean, I think it was petering out. And I mean, it was already threatened in the mid 2000s. You yeah. know, you saw yeah. chains like Hollywood Video closing. 
Um, I think by that happened toward the end of the 2000s. I remember working at a video store, we would go and buy up the stock of chain video stores that were going out of business. Yeah, yeah. what's f interesting about that is um, I used to be part of a video collective called Everything is Terrible, and that whole thing was kind of born out of video stores closing because we would go and um, you know buy up the entire stock of VHS that they would have at video stores. And so that kind of, it fueled that too, that particular moment. It's funny. I mean, a lot of this episode, I think, is going to be about our nostalgia. But there's even nostalgia for the the period when a, when a bunch of video stores were going out of business because I think all of us increased, all of us grew our libraries just by going to stores that were that were essentially going under. Oh, absolutely, getting, yeah. And, 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 well, and I, I think <laughs> if you were pro video store, you became a lot more passionate. But I, I do want to mm -hmm. say that I there was a feeling, as brief, maybe it lasted less than a year, that the big video stores were going to uh, go under and be replaced with stuff like Redbox or Netflix because streaming hadn't come on the scene yet. And the idea was that all that would be left would be the rent-by-mail services and the indies for the people right. who still wanted to go to a video store and still wanted to browse and still wanted that that selection. Yeah, and uh, even possibly a renaissance for indie video stores. Yeah, that was around, yeah, I'd say like the late 2000s was around mm -hmm. that period. Um, but what's interesting, you know, about video stores, we're talking about the short life, they've been dying for at least half of their existence. Mm -hmm. There is uh, one remaining blockbuster, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, it's in Bend, Oregon, and uh, supposedly it's surviving. In March, uh, it's funny because the last remaining blockbuster gets a ton of press. <laughs> I mean, they need a PR <laughs> agent. Every few months, somebody will do a interview with the general manager of the store being like, so you're still open? And the manager's like, yep, we're still open. Um, but in uh, March was the most recent of those, and they interviewed the general manager of the last remaining blockbuster in Bend, Oregon, and she had started offering curbside service uh, for COVID. So that store is still hanging in there. But something that's interesting about Blockbuster is until 2018, Blockbuster was still thriving in Alaska. And the reason for that is because um, the internet access, uh, it was basically difficult to get internet access fast enough to support streaming in Alaska, simply because, you know, they're laying cables across these huge expanses of land. And so Blockbuster- and because they pay $30 for a, a jug of milk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. For similar reasons, blockbusters continued to thrive in Alaska because, um, you know, you couldn't it was just too expensive to get Netflix to work up there. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, and I have noticed uh, over the last decade or so that the places where I tend to find like I have family that lives up in in uh, like in northern Michigan near the Upper Peninsula. And when I go up there. Phone service tends to be very bad and uh, internet tends to be spotty and there are places where you can rent videos or, well, I guess DVDs at this point. You can rent DVDs up there. Um, yeah. Um, there's got to be a correlation. Yeah. yeah, I have a friend who's from North Dakota, and she said that the um, gas stations will still have uh, videos for rent there. And also the first video store that I worked at was in Athens, Ohio, which is um, it's right. It's by the border of West Virginia, Ohio and Kentucky, you know, a poor Appalachian area. And the Internet service when I worked there about 15 years ago wasn't uh, very good. And so um, video stores continue to thrive there. And actually, because of the poverty in the region, uh, 
people still had VHS players uh, in the mid 2000s and were very upset that they stopped making new releases on VHS. <laughs> um, so yeah, there there are some issues of like accessibility involved, and in rural areas is um, definitely the last places where video stores will go because of you know and technological factors. Wasn't a history of violence the last uh, I was, film? Indeed, release? I was going to say were were they stuck just watching a history of violence? <laughs> <laughs> I remember that because I was working at the store when A History of Violence came out. And yeah, I would tell people, sorry, History of Violence was the last one. They're like, what do you mean? They're, like, They're not making them anymore. <laughs> yeah. Here we should explain that A History of Violence, the, the Cronenberg film, it has the distinction of being the last major release to have uh, mm-hmm. to have hit home video on VHS. Yep. Yeah. In 2005. Yep. And but yeah, like I said, uh, in the region where I lived, uh, you know, people is impoverished and people didn't have DVD players yet in 05. Um, I want to talk a little bit about our first memories of video stores, because I do think that they loomed pretty large in all of our lives. Um, uh, I grew up in a city. I grew up in Lansing, Michigan, and uh, that was a city that had uh, both a blockbuster and an independent video store. There was one that was uh, sort of an institution in town that uh, I ended up working at later in in life. It was called Video to Go, and uh, it had a rather large selection. Maybe not large compared to something like like Odd Obsession or um, or Facets here in Chicago as well, but uh, certainly a, a, a pretty robust one. And uh, we talked earlier about the idea that a, a lot of video stores, their focus was entirely on new releases with just sort of a um, almost a perfunctory collection of older movies. Just like, sure, if we're if we're out of if we're out of Patriot Games or something, you can just watch this instead. <laughs> you know, what I do. I do want to stand up a little bit for Blockbuster and Hollywood Video because you, you know, a good-sized Blockbuster often had, you know, six, seven thousand titles. The bigger ones, you may find more than that, and that's almost as much as you'll find on Netflix nowadays. You know, in one brick-and-mortar store. It's true. If you wanted to, if you wanted to hold Blockbuster up to. Uh, to Netflix, I think you would. Uh, Blockbuster definitely ends up looking better. I will say that I find I do find a little bit of nostalgia for Blockbuster a little silly um, because yeah, uh, I feel like people have forgotten some of the reasons that 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 cinephiles hated Blockbuster d- during its heyday. I mean, yeah. they would edit they they would edit movies for content. Um, the selection was solid, I guess. I, I guess is what you're saying, but I mean, also you would often not find. Uh, some, some more obscure titles there. Um, and they did drive small video stores out of business. That, that was sort of part of their business model. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, yeah, you'll see like streetwear brands doing blockbuster collections and things like that. And yeah, the thing is that at the time, like blockbuster was kind of seen as the Starbucks of video stores that was going to drive all the mom and pops out of business. Yeah. But so, my you know, my memory was uh, I would, you know, my parents would take me to the video store and I would spend a lot of time sort of just... Just uh, marveling at box art. That's one mm-hmm. thing that I very much miss about video stores is sort of wandering the aisles and, and uh, particularly the horror section. I was I was a horror kid and I spent a lot of time sort of scouring the horror section um, and just there, there were definitely movies that I never saw that I just looked at the box art and was too afraid to rent. Um, 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had a very similar experience. Yeah. I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, actually. Yeah. I wasn't allowed to watch horror movies when I was a little kid. So I would just go in the back of the video store and network video. I remember the horror section was in the back corner all the way in the end. And I would just go back there and look at look at (laughs) boxes of movies I wasn't allowed to rent. I think there's an inventory to, to, to be done on the site, honestly, about movies. And actually, this would probably confuse half of our readership, but there is. A, I think there's an inventory to be done on movies whose box art was way scarier than the actual movies. You know, <laughs> that's a lot of them, honestly. <laughs> to, to which some of our readers would would reply, "Box art." <laughs> yeah. Um. So, uh, yeah, it was definitely there was something there was just something magical about about just the sheer volume of just wandering down an aisle and being presented with all these choices um, that uh, I guess the streaming services can't really compare with that in a way. Yeah. Um, my, my first video store was called Network Video and it was an independent video store that um, uh, it was two floors is what I remember about it. And I remember that they had a RoboCop standee, cardboard standee and a uh, R2-D2 and C-3PO standee in the in the front door. And when the video store was closed, they would block the door off with the standees and you knew that, you know, they were closed and you couldn't go in. Got it. <laughs> I, I mean, the standee, I have the... And I, I feel like standees are like a part of video store called or like basically were were at their peak as a kind of kitschy part of film culture in the era of video stores because video stores tended to be sent so many stupid promotional items yeah but the one i have like the most specific memory of is the standee for virtuosity starring (laughs) denzel washington and russell crowe i think it's like russell crowe's first american role a movie with great production design very silly movie great production design (laughs) Um, and it had like this giant standee that looked like uh, like some kind of high tech, uh, I don't know, machine that would scan your hand. Really, it was just like some material that would slightly react to the, you know, the heat in your palm. But when I was a kid, it just seemed so incredibly cool mm-hmm. yeah there was a lot of um yeah that used to be a thing where they would throw out you know every time they would get new um like you said all these ridiculous promotional items you know stores would throw them out and people would come and get them and collect them that used to be a big thing um ignati where uh can you talk about the first video stores that you went to that you remember going to well i uh you know i'm a child of the former soviet union i grew up in moscow and so my early video store memories, I think, are very different from sure. uh, your early video store memories and yeah. the video store memories of most of our listeners. Um, I grew up in kind of a, a boom of pirated video when a whole lot of basically pirated, mostly American titles started arriving, you know, shortly after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so our my quote unquote video store was I would describe it as a closet in the grocery store closest to our uh, metro stop in Moscow, which was stocked with exclusively bootleg uh, titles, like handwritten, no box art, Mm -hmm. you know, just a plain VHS tape that was copied, which was already, that was exotic enough. That, you know, uh, owning a uh, a VCR to watch it on uh, in those kind of very, very dingy, uh, post-Soviet early 90s was 
that was enough. I have a question about that then. Yeah. So how were you choosing what you watched? If 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 it's just a title, and this is obviously these are the pre, this is the pre-internet era. Um, so you're not, it's not like you could be like, huh, I'm interested in seeing a movie tonight. I'm going to look it up online, uh, or, or I have my phone or something at, at the video store and I'm going to see what this is. If it was just the titles on a blank tape, how are you, how are you making your choices? Oh, very simple. I, uh, just watched whatever had Arnold Schwarzenegger or Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> that was, that was my criteria because I was allowed to watch anything. From, you know, uh, I, I can't remember a time when I wasn't allowed to watch, like, uh, tra- traumatically R-rated action movies. <laughs> um, and I should explain here, by the way, that these films were dubbed uh, by whoever was pirating them. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so you would have one voice doing all of the dialogue, not always in sync, and... And this is like a for for people who were born in Russia of my generation. This is like a Proustian trigger. The sound of this guy's voice, because it was like this. It was always it was like he had his nose pinched, <laughs> and he would just recite the dialogue really, really flatly. Like I'll be back, uh, and <laughs> over over the entire movie. And sometimes as my English got better, I did realize that a lot of it would like a lot of the idioms. And, and you know, occasional puns and wordplay were totally lost on whoever was writing these translations. So sometimes it was a little bit confusing to follow the plot. But that was, I mean, that was my, uh, not, you know, just not just introduction to video stores, but those are some of my earliest memories of movies. I mean, you know, I, I remember going to see movies in movie theaters. I think the first movie I remember seeing was Millennium starring Chris Christopherson. Um, it's a time travel movie. Uh, okay. It's not good. It's very <laughs> weird. Um, but mostly it was like watching, oh, what's the, the one with Charlie Sheen? Is it U.S. Seals or something? I think we copied it. It's Navy Seals. The film is Navy That's Seals. That's it, yeah. Simply Navy Seals. Because um, there's another movie called like U.S. Navy Seals. Uh, oh, well, can I ask you this then? Do you have movies where you're, where you kind of remember them better in that form than in the form where they were not dubbed? I, I think it's 50-50 with Commando, which mm-hmm. was okay. probably my favorite film when I was six years old, um, where I can still hear this guy's nasally voice speaking over <laughs> speaking over everyone. Um, but I've seen Commando, and it's in the original enough times to, uh, uh, to have that equally imprinted. Um, well, here's a question. You know, there's a lot of nostalgia amongst Americans for, you know, like VHS era aesthetics and things like that. Is there nostalgia in Russia for, you know, these these bootlegs and the pinch nose guy and all that stuff? You know, I've talked about it. It's it's more of like a sense of irony about it. I mean, it's funny. It's a thing that everybody remembers um, is there was it seemed like there were just a handful of people that were doing all the quote unquote dubbing. And to be honest, that was still really, really common um, when American movies or any foreign films were shown on TV in Russia for a really long time to have one person doing the dubbing. And that was also a convention that had carried over from Soviet films where Often, if there was dialogue in a foreign language, it would be that portion would be spoken by one voice um, instead of using subtitles because we're a, a dubbing country. Um, but uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a little bit. Yeah, I'm sure there's a little bit of uh, nostalgia for it. 
I mean, I have nostalgia for it, but I, while at the same time admitting that it was a really terrible way to uh, to watch movies. <laughs> uh, Katie, I, I'm interested because, um, it, you know, I've talked about this on the show before, um, about I did not have a lot of content restrictions um, mm-hmm. growing up. I was allowed to watch, I mean, those walks through the, the aisle at, at, you know, the horror aisle at the video store, whether or not I ended up seeing that movie was largely a matter of my own could I work up the courage to say, yes, mom and dad, or, or I would like to watch this. Um, but you uh, you did not have that kind of um, laissez-faire. Uh, your parents did not have that, 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 that kind no. of... Uh, you didn't have that freedom to see whatever you wanted. So was the video store sometimes like a, a negotiation a little bit? Were you like, hey, I want to watch this. Can I rent it? Or was it very like hard, like, no, that's not for you? Yeah, I didn't really try all that much. I think I went through every single film in, you know, the the kids section at Network Video. I went through all of them. There were a couple that were my favorites that I would rent again and again. There was a Sesame Street special where they went to the Met that I really liked because it got a little <laughs> bit scary at the end. And I was like, yeah, this is great. And um, The Secret of Nim scared me a lot and so I would rent it a lot <laughs> it's like you had substitutions for horror movies yeah, you were a, hor- yeah, you were a horror much, movie yeah. kid I, before I you could watch horror fil- movies yeah I knew which kids films got dark and I would watch those again, and again. Yeah. <laughs> see I feel like I missed out on a lot of a lot of children's entertainment I didn't really catch up with it until much later or at least mm-hmm. children's entertainment from that era because I was I could rent whatever. Well, I, I want to know if you missed out. A lot of children's entertainment is garbage. Um, to, <laughs> tell to, to tell me honest. about it, man. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, I guess you know that yeah. now as a parent. <laughs> yeah. Well, and beyond that, we've all been to a 10 a.m. Saturday morning uh, screening of a kid's yeah. film and just gone, yeah. well, it's a limit, you know? <laughs> but you know what? And I don't know if this is true. I, I, I always hear stories from people about like their parents watching movies, you know, like uh, renting movies that were specific for them like you know you had it was r-rated you have to you had to you know go sit in a different part of the house or something which is obviously different from you know the culture of movie theaters and movie going but the, the thing for me is my my parents at were pretty young when i was born so i remember my dad when he was like you know i have good memories of my dad when he was like 27 mm-hmm. um and by the time i was getting really obsessively into movies he was still in his early 30s and he was also getting into movies so uh, you know, by that point we were living in the United States. There was a, a video store that we used to always go to that had a five movies, five dollars, five days special, mm-hmm. and it was generally three for me, two for him. And he was just like watching the weirdest things. Like he would want, like I remember watching Faster Pussycat Kill Kill with him. <laughs> he was going through like a Russ Meyer phase, or like he's really interested in camp. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> no, yeah, my parents uh, to this day aren't cinephiles. Uh, you know, I they largely see films based on my recommendations. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, Another answer to your question is that I read a lot more books when I was a child. <laughs> I was a voracious reader instead of a, you know, an avid movie watcher. So that's something that's changed over the years. That's how you got your fix. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one very silly thing that I am nostalgic uh, for um, about video stores, and uh, I think this is just a product. It was something that I did regularly when I was younger. Was um, was actually hunting for that new release. And going in, I remember going in with my dad on a Friday night to to Blockbuster or something, or to Video to Go. I think there was a Hollywood video eventually as well in our town. Um, but going in, and there's there's a new movie that's just hit VHS, 
Um, one that's stuck in my memory for one reason or another is The Good Son. When that hit VHS, <laughs> I was probably about 10 when that happened. Um, and uh, waiting around for one, that one single copy to come back. And yeah. uh, you're like, you know, there's a whole, in the video store era, you know, something like that would command two whole shelves or something of the, uh, usually they're along the outside of the store, uh, along the outer edges of the store. And um, you would just, just, you would sort of like hound the clerk behind the counter about it. You'd go over there every 15 minutes and be like, hey, is there a copy back? And they're like, no, like I told you last time, not yet. And you would just <laughs> hang out. And if you were persistent enough, you would get that copy. And it, it, it was exciting in that way. It was, um, if, if you just were willing to put in the time, you could maybe get this hot new film that was out. Um, I think that's a very different experience than, um, than going to see something opening weekend, for example. What's funny about that is, you know, on the opposite side is a video store clerk. Um, from that experience, I can say the best time to show up is right when they open because, you know, you're yep. emptying out the, the overnight returns bin first thing in the, mo- in the morning. For sure. And I remember my dad sometimes would be like, all right, I'll go in the morning and see if I can get a copy before, you know, before Friday night or something. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I, you know, I think that there's a certain virtue to the video store that obviously has been lost in the streaming in the, in the streaming era. Um, I don't think that's purely nostalgia on our part as older millennials. I think it is just kind of it's it's a different experience and it's and it's a different experience in terms of discovering films. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to browsing. Uh, I do think that um, there was something a little. Uh, the ability to, to physically walk down an aisle and, and see the movies laid out in that way, I think, uh, encouraged a different kind of browsing than going through a streaming service. Would you agree? First of all, speak for yourself, because I'm not an older millennial. I'm a strictly middle-of-the-road, still youthful millennial. Uh, all right. <laughs> even though I have recently discovered, I, you know, given the, the current circumstances, I decided to finally grow out a beard. Um, and oh. discovered that it's like half gray, um, which is very was a very sobering experience. But I feel like coming I'm be for able you to too, buddy. <laughs> Age comes for us all. <laughs> the Reaper, the Reaper's at my door. <laughs> That's right. Um, I, I, you know, I. It's something I still, I, I love so much. I love browsing in stores. I love going to get one specific thing and then you know, spending 30 minutes just looking around. Um, and it is something that's that's missing in, uh, I think, the streaming world, even though you have convenience. I don't think that it's, you know, there's nothing very exciting about scrolling through, like, Amazon Prime for 20 minutes to decide what you're going to watch. Um, video stores, I think, you know, they were like bookstores. At their best, they were like bookstores or, like, record stores in that uh, there was just, you know, all of this stuff to look at and you could just go down a shelf. You didn't necessarily, in a good video store, you didn't necessarily found what you thought you came for, mm-hmm. but you did leave with what you wanted. Yeah, um, actually, yeah. You, what, that was one of the cool things about video stores is sometimes you go there to find the new release and they didn't have it and you'd end up renting something else and really liking the thing that you didn't even know existed until you, you know, you ended up wandering the aisles because they didn't have the thing that you were looking for. And um, you mentioned scrolling through Amazon Prime, Ignati. That's actually one of my least favorite things about streaming is the overwhelming uh, choice 
um, the fact that you can just you can just sit there for hours and just keep looking and looking and looking and looking and looking for something to find. And I find that having too many choices sometimes can be a negative in the sense that, uh, you know, y you won't stick it out. Like in the video store days, you rented a movie. And if the first 15 minutes weren't really catching you, you went, well, I rented this movie. I might as well watch the mm -hmm. rest of it. Yeah. And but in the streaming era, you'll bail if you don't if it doesn't immediately capture your attention. And I think that overall, that's a negative, um, you know, psychologically like attention span. <laughs> no, I mean, there is a benefit to a finite selection. There is ultimately. Um, I think I think part of part of the irony of, what we're, of, of at least what I'm saying here is that I both appreciate uh, that a good video store has an enormous selection, but I also appreciate that it's not infinite. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, go, going back to what what Katie said just a moment ago, do you think that that fed into the that kind of VHS era appreciation for bad movies? You know, the that culture of well, I've rented it, I'm going to watch it all the way through, mm -hmm. um, because I feel like that kind of that that sense of irony applied to you know kind of crummy titles that would then become. Uh, that would develop some kind of cult around them is a very it's a little bit of a gen x phenomenon and therefore a little bit of kind of a video store era phenomenon i, I think i would agree actually and I, and I think some of it also has to come down to the fact that uh, the possibility of stumbling into a weird bad movie seemed a little higher in the video store era partially because of the way that they they were because of something like box art so you might actually take a chance on on something you wouldn't necessarily in the streaming era um because a it was available it was there and you, and you could get your hands on it and not you know i mean like in the streaming era anything that anything that is available on streaming you can watch and i realize that i'm expressing nostalgia for a lack of access in some senses here but i do think that the the ability to rent only what was there in the store uh, did sometimes steer you towards more interesting films. And uh, and that's where the element of curation comes in. And a really mm -hmm. good video store, particularly one of the specialty video stores that came up, you know, later on, um, a blockbuster, maybe the clerk has an encyclopedic knowledge of film and can give you a good recommendation. But some of the places that I worked later on, um, that was part of the job requirement was that you had to be able to pull out, you know, five different recommendations for everybody that came in the store. And that right. that's an element that um, some streaming services do that and some are just, you know, they just dump them on the platform. And there's an art to it. You really have to be able to quickly kind of sniff out a customer's limits you mm -hmm. know <laughs> before before you make a recommendation and oh i i actually miss one of the things i miss most about working in a video store was is that sense you know like is talking to people getting them to see something and then having them come back and tell you that they liked it and i get the feeling that for a lot of people for their memories of independent video stores that's also what they miss was having a person there that would recommend them something that they otherwise might not have picked out. Yeah, you, you I mean, a great video store really is as much about the staff uh, or was as much about the staff as as the selection. And, and an algorithm is never going to be able to compete with 
a human being behind a counter who can talk to you about these things and who can start get a, a real sense of your sensibility that does not have to, that, that is not necessarily informed simply by what you've watched before, but by having real conversations with you. Yeah, I mean, Netflix yeah. has poured billions of dollars into developing their platform, and yet every day it believes that I really want to see Trumbo. <laughs> it's just it's convinced right. that the problem with me not watching Trumbo is that I just haven't haven't seen it yet you know and it's trying to entice me with these algorithmically you know like because you know how they have multiple options for uh what the image that's going to appear is yeah and it's, it's always trying to you know gauge your taste and pick a pick a specific out one out and it, it's just convinced that this image of brian cranston sitting in a bathtub giving this face <laughs> that's like Ooh. um is is really that's my thing that's what i want to see yeah every day the algorithm wakes up and goes today's the day <laughs> today gonna... is the day for trumbo <laughs> you should watch it just so they stop recommending it to you <laughs> it's gonna recommend me more stuff like trumbo yeah, that's you're right you're right it's a trap <laughs> oh boy um so we all worked at video stores over the mm -hmm. years um the two of you actually both worked at odd obsession here in chicago although you did not work together i understand no yeah we we worked in different eras of the store which yeah, is funny yeah, yeah. because ignati you and i also both worked at the landmark century center here in chicago a um a movie theater in the landmark chain and we did not overlap there either yeah so <laughs> we were like it was like right very close like i started right after you left there so yeah. i didn't leave i was fired right <laughs> Just to be clear. i was trying to i was putting it lightly it was a euphemism but uh, i missed my <laughs> shift and i was fired yeah yeah, those two places are really rites of passage in Chicago. If you're a film person, you probably did time at one of those places. Out yeah, of totally. Or, or the Landmark, or both. I had a co-worker at Facets who also worked at the Landmark. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, and, and you worked at Facets and mm -hmm. at Odd Obsession. Yeah, at uh, the and same we time. We should say here, Facets, Facets was a kind of... I don't know if you were at Odd Obsession, Facets was like your more respectable cousin. Yeah, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, the funny thing about Facets is they had a gigantic library of films. And so actually, you know, sometimes uh, they would have non-respectable stuff as well. They did not have any adult films at uh, Facets, but we dealt, we had a customer that came in and it, and it became this sort of game of chicken that he and I would play where he'd come in and give say, give me your grossest, goriest movie. And it kept escalating until I was um, giving him, you know, like Japanese gore movies that had been investigated in by the hole. FBI. Yeah, yep. <laughs> it got there. It got to Mermaid in a Manhole. He watched every Italian cannibal movie, and I was like, well, there's always this one. <laughs> and they had that in the, you know, mixed in with the more respectable titles and facets as well. <laughs> For me, I mean, working at a video store, um, so I, again, I worked at... Um, well, I worked at Hollywood Video for a few years in Chicago. Um, not not a few years, sorry, a few months. I was not there long. Um, but in college, I worked. Uh, I worked, but before I moved to Chicago, I worked at at this big video store in in Lansing, Michigan, called Video to Go. Um, and, uh, this was, uh, this was like my, my final job basically before moving to Chicago. Um, and I was working at this place that I, that from really this institution from my childhood, this big video store. And, um, obviously the access to, um, to a store's library is the big, for a cinephile who wants to work at a video store, that is the big draw is that you get free rentals 
and suddenly this entire the store's library is at your fingertips um but for me it was also i really do feel like working there was its own kind of like film education you know and uh we talked earlier about the value of going to a video store as opposed to a streaming service and part of that is that there the, you have this knowledgeable staff that can help you find what you want. Now, working with a group of people like that is uh, is maybe even more valuable. I, I really do feel like a lot of my sensibilities as an 18, 19 year old kid were shaped by this group of uh, slightly older, slightly older cinephiles who worked there and all had competing ideas about about movies. And um, uh, it 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 really did feel like like a film education as valuable as the one that I got in college, honestly. Yeah, I feel pretty strongly about this, actually, you know, uh, because especially if you come from a background where you can't afford to go to film school, you know, uh, I think the video stores are or were uh, a really um, sort of a democratizing force in the sense that you could get a film education on your own while still working, still having a job. Yeah, I mean, I, I always say that Out Obsession was my alma mater. It was, you know, I basically dropped out of college to work at a video store. Um, also because I was very bad at going to college. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I did, you know, barely two semesters uh, is about how long I lasted. And so, yeah, was I, I used to joke when I was, uh, you know, still working at a video store. I used to say that I dropped out of film school so that I could spend more time watching movies. Yeah. Um, and it was it was true in a sense uh, because, yeah, most of my film education came from uh, from the people I worked with and from, you know, interesting customers and what they would rent. But, you know, I, now that I think about it, because I do think a lot about what it, about the layout of video stores, and I think it was always very important to have a particular kind of layout that was slightly overwhelming. Like you got the sense that there was so much there, but was still navigable. And I think about this a lot because I had to organize Odd Obsession many times. Yeah. Um, and you know, make make layout changes, and it, I liked doing that stuff. So that tasks often fell to me. Um, but just having to figure out okay what needs a label you know because we had it organized by country and then usually sometimes by genre if there was like because there were like for instance a lot of italian genre films there was separately italy and then italian genre and that became very confusing uh later on and then that would be organized by director and so you have to figure out you know why do we have a label for Lamberto Bava? Is he really as good as Mario Bava? The answer is no. But you, you, you know, felt the need to investigate. Yeah, um, it is funny. I remember that about the odd obsession um, shelving system, which is, you know, when a new film would come in, you would have to decide, is this director significant enough for the director section or is it just simply American contemporary? <laughs> you know, and there, there, was an, uh, there was a lot of snobbishness to it. I'm going to, especially <laughs> for me at Odd Obsession in the early years where, you know, there were still, there, the, the collection was not quite as exhaustive. And there was this still this idea that when you make a, when you print that label and put it on a shelf, you are enshrining a director. Um, and so there was often a resistance to, you know, giving a particular, you know, filmmaker their own space. I mean, it's, yeah, it was kind of pretentious, late teens, early 20s snobbery, but I, I don't think that that's necessarily that bad. I think that that's, uh, 
it can be good motivation, uh, especially if you're kind of trying to self-educate yourself. Yeah, and it's kind of necessary when you're that age to have a pretentious face, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Youthful pretension gets a bad rap. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, talking about um, making the sections and things like that, the thing that I found the most soothing about working at the video store, and this is actually how I started working at Odd Obsession, is I would volunteer to come in and shelve DVDs. And I just loved shelving DVDs. There was something about it that really soothed the anxious part of my mind. And at facets, they were numbered. It wasn't by, you know, title. So, like, um, in the display in the front things would be organized you know um by by country mostly and then in the back it was all just by numbers and i used to just love coming in and i would volunteer to do this because some of my coworkers didn't really want to do it and you know you you put them all in numerical order and then you put them all back in order and everything briefly for a brief moment all is orderly in the world <laughs> <laughs> that was the sort of the plum that could also be like the plum job that you had on, on a busy night at the video store was like, Oh yeah. Uh, oh, you know, I'll do returns, you know, or I, I'll walk things, I'll do the reshelving, you know? Yeah. 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 Uh, well, you yeah. know, sometimes at facets to be perfectly frank, if you were working a, you know, Wednesday afternoon at facets, uh, the, the shelving was the only work there was to do. <laughs> we didn't have a lot of people yeah. coming in. So <laughs> Yeah, did Anna... you didn't have have people rushing in, you know, seven p.m. Wednesday to get, you know, armloads of Roberto Rossellini movies. <laughs> Not really. No. <laughs> yeah, did Odd Obsession ever have? Did Odd Obsession ever have rushes? Yeah, you know what? Actually, there, especially once it moved to, because it was initially in uh, Lincoln Park, uh, which, for those who don't know, Chicago is. A bougie neighborhood and was a bougie neighborhood at the time though it was also up you know up the street from um well there there wasn't there weren't as many gigantic stores around and it was up the street from what had been the site of cabrini green so you got a very good mix of people but you didn't really get uh a lot of people who lived like north of the store it was also across the street from the steppenwolf so uh, the steppenwolf theater so it wasn't like you had uh, the usual kind of walkthroughs, you know, it was like people going to see a play uh, are not going to jump in and then rent a VH or rent a DVD. Uh, but once it had moved to uh, to Bucktown, um, it uh, you know it became it was a neighborhood video store, and so you would get a lot of people, and especially you know in the evening on a Friday or a Saturday. Yeah. Yeah, you'd, you'd have a big line and a lot of people to deal with. Yeah, the Friday night movie renting does seem to be a tradition, you know, all all across America, at least. It's, that's when you would go to the video store. When I was a kid, that's what we would do. And you reference that down to going on Fridays. It, that's the day. That's the busy day. And especially, I mean, if you were like a teenager hanging out with friends, it was so much cheaper than having to all go to a movie. Mm -hmm. You know, you just rented one thing and hung out in a living room. Mm -hmm. Um that I mean, that's that's a I, I think a particular kind of cultural experience that was unique to that era. Obviously, you can replicate it with streaming, but there's this um, sense of going to a place, taking way too goddamn long to <laughs> agree on what you're going to rent. Um, and you know, I, I I do think there's always something to be said for a little bit of inconvenience in your life um, because it often it points you into interesting directions and generally makes for a more interesting reality. I've, I've, I've thought about this a little bit and I think the idea that uh, I think about it in terms of music sometimes 
and how getting into a band or an artist or a movement or a genre um, is easier than it's than it's ever been. But I feel like the amount of time that we are willing to spend on something has been reduced by the total access that we have at all times. And you know, when you when when you buy an album, for example, you give it the time of day. You say, you know what? I purchased this with my money. I physically am holding it in my hand. I'm going to give this the time of day. I remember even bad albums. I would usually give at least, a, you know, I would go, I would go, and I've listened to some very bad music in my time. And as a teenager, liked some very bad music. But um, you would give something, you would give something its its day in court, so to speak, because you because you you physically bought it and uh, it's in your hand. I think that um, I'm going somewhere with this. I promise. the The amount of access that people now have at at at, at the uh, sort of the click of a button uh, has turned that uh, relationship to media. Um, I, I, I think it's it's changed it fundamentally. And I think a big part of one of the reasons I, I miss video stores is that it it did feel like an investment every time you picked something up at the store and brought it home. And it is the reason I think you would often you would often finish a movie that you brought that you bought, and uh, the ability now to to change instantly between um, to start something and then say five minutes in say nah I'm not into this, and then you have a thousand other options right at your fingertips. I think that has uh, changed people's relationship to finishing things and to seeing something through. But how much do you think that's clouded by? I, I mean, there's is always nostalgia to it, right? Uh, the thing I'm thinking about is, you know, a lot of our listeners haven't had access to a video store in a very long time. Um, how do you know? How do we apply that to just day to day life, to regular life today, right? Um, beyond just thinking back, oh, things were so much better when we were younger. Um, how how can we bring that back? into into culture obviously there are some surviving video stores um fewer and fewer and i do think that video stores served an incredibly important function that you know they were pay libraries basically and some of that function is is still you know it's still filled by public libraries Mm -hmm. um but they're generally not places where you can talk do you know what I mean? Right. Uh, no, yeah. To me, one of the things that made, I do think that, you know, at their best, video stores were were very democratic because mm-hmm. they were the only place in kind of in movie culture where you were kind of expected to hang out and talk, which is, you know, it, which is unlike, which was unlike really anything else. Um, and where, you know, you'd get a very nice mix of, of high and lowbrow kind of in the same in the same space, sometimes in the same aisle. Yeah, even at Facets, which, you know, was, um, it's the more highbrow option. Even there, like I said, we had lowbrow stuff for rent as well. And and it was very uh, dependent on the customer, like you said. And um, you would develop relationships with customers over time and you knew what they liked and you knew what to recommend to them. And if something new came in that you knew they would like, you would uh, give it to them to rent. Yeah, right. Because you you would have it's it's a place where unlike any movie theater, right? You would get your rep screening titles and your big Hollywood blockbusters in the same space. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in a movie theater that that doesn't happen. There's generally kind of a separate uh, separate business of art house and rep theaters and then big big multiplexes. 
Well, even further, there's also adult movies, too, at, at yes. some video oh, stores. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> I worked at a video store. I don't know if either of you did, but I worked at a video store with an adult section. And um, it was it, this was the era when um, celebrity sex tapes were the big thing. And I have a lot of memories of the smell of that room. That room had a very particular smell. <laughs> And I had a coworker who was religious, and so she refused to, you know, clean. She refused to touch the porn tapes, or shelve the porn tapes, or clean the porn room, or anything. So it always felt on me, and I actually kind of resented that. I was like, "You're dumping work on me." <laughs> but <laughs> no, I have very specific memories of that room, and chasing children out of that room, and things like that. <laughs> and uh, honestly, we did a fair amount of business on on uh, adult tapes. And my least favorite task at that job was having to call people um if a tape was two weeks or more late you had to call the customer every day until they returned it and my least favorite task was calling and telling people you know that their their porno was late (laughs) oh we we had a guy who treasured treasured that that part of the job just chasing people (laughs) calling people charging their credit cards that they had to have on file um uh Though we actually, Odd Obsession, you you either, you know, the membership was free, but you either had a credit card on file or you could put down a cash deposit and uh, then you kind of be limited to what you rented. Uh, But he loved, he loved leaving those those, uh, messages on voicemails and, you know, a lot of the older folks still had answering machines um, in those days. Uh, Did you have the classic beaded curtain? Uh, no, yes. no. It was a it was an actual door. It was a room with a door that closed. Oh. See, I when I uh when we first moved uh or when I first started living in, you know, the US in the mid 90s, um our video store that we would always go to, the $5 uh 5 days 5 movies deal video store, which is called Entertainment Tonight, I believe, but in with an N I T E to avoid getting sued. Yes, exactly. Um had <laughs> Oh, it had the beaded curtain. Um, we uh, that video store. It I, I remember really have very fond memories of its signs. You know, like it had. Uh, I mean, the like open sign, the like lit up signage, um, and then it caught fire, and but it burned down the store next door. Oh wow! <laughs> and so they had to close. You know, to uh, because of that, and you know, we bought literally boxes of of VHS tapes. Yeah. When they closed. I think the fact that the the adult room at the store I worked at had a door that closed probably contributed quite a bit to the smell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm curious because it, it in my experience uh, being a, a video store clerk at a store that had an adult section, Video to Go did have one of those. Um, uh, I don't feel like the the normal relationship that you have with a customer at the video store w- was there where people would ask for recommendations. It was always, uh, I would say, 75% of the time, it was people who seemed vaguely embarrassed about, about renting uh, adult films. And uh, they were not interested in having any kind of relationship with the clerk behind the counter. They would just come up, here's the movies, and that's it. But... Um, did either of you experience people looking for recommendations on uh, on adult films? This is something odd that, obsession yeah. constantly. <laughs> yeah, the, it depends on the store. And odd obsession is a place where people would ask for recommendations on adult films. Con- yeah, every day. And uh, like I would, there was a guy who knew a lot more about like say seventies porn than I did because you know odd obsession's kind of whole mission was to carry stuff that was underappreciated and also that was rare. 
and we had a very large selection of you know we didn't have contemporary porn or anything like that yeah. you know we didn't have uh you know anything with a number at the end <laughs> um but we you know we'd have like a lot of old tapes um and there were a lot of people who collected them um who would come in you know were like really really into that stuff uh and they would just hang out for hours yeah um and always needed extremely specific recommendations and we were talking earlier uh before we started recording um you know i remember uh, like there was a guy who would always have really really specific needs like he would come in and be like uh do you know if there's any like a porno 70s 80s about mermaids <laughs> Um, and he wanted also erotic films about Frankenstein that were not the erotic rights of Frankenstein, which we did. I've seen that one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Customers at places like Odd Obsession, definitely. It was a little more challenging to recommend things because they had seen everything. Uh, so yeah, that was a little more of a, um, process, but uh, Odd Obsession is actually the place, uh, speaking of education, you know, being there is when I first started to think about, you know, adult films or erotic films as cinema, you know, that would have cinematic um, virtues to them. So I'll give, a, well, give the store credit for that. Uh, and you have to, you kind of have to give credit to one specific person <laughs> yes. that I think we're, we're thinking about here is a guy named Joe Rubin who worked at Odd Obsession. He's one of the founders of uh, Vinegar Syndrome. Yes, which it is should a, surprise no one if you're familiar with Yeah, which Syndrome. is a, yeah, which is a boutique label, uh, home video label that handles a lot of very, you know, uh, extravagantly restored, let's say, mm. um, you know, older, older, hardcore X-rated titles. And he was very big on kind of making the case for some of the people that worked on these films as, auteurs. you know, as, as having, yeah, as auteurs, as having like artistic ambitions that for whatever reason they couldn't realize. So they were just kind of trying to work them out while making... Uh, you know, one day wonders with mob money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I do wonder, I have to say, I, I, I wonder if um, part of the reasons that video stores have been hurt over the year, including independent video stores, is because of the streaming revolution uh, in with pornography, uh, with, with the idea that people can now get porn for free on the internet. Because a, a lot of video stores would make, would make a, a good chunk of their business from the adult video section. Yeah, um, definitely. At Premiere, the uh, the late fees on adult titles were higher than on right. um, non-adult titles, and we used to we used to collect some pretty hefty late fees. And because of the shame factor, people would just pay them. You know, they wouldn't quibble with right. you about it. Yeah. Um, um, you know what? the The other thing is uh, uh, the darker side of it is that the decline in I, I think adult video uh, rentals really took the. Um, took the money laundering aspect out of out of <laughs> video stores because um, so much of at least here in Chicago I can say a large part of that uh, the the adult video rental market and the adult bookstore industry was uh, was money laundering operations okay. well it's interesting um, uh, speaking of everything is terrible we used to go to adult video stores a lot but um, particularly in New York City they had a law that they had to have some percentage of their stock had to be non-adult videos you couldn't have a store that mm -hmm. was all porn and you would find some of the most interesting low-budget horror movies for sale at porno stores because they oh. had to have a few titles to put up front 
and you know mm. you could usually buy them off of them I think overall you didn't really have as personal relationships with customers who would rent adult films but there was one guy who I think about fairly often actually back in Premiere um, like I mentioned it was by the border of West Virginia and Kentucky so Point Pleasant West Virginia home of the Mothman was nearby and there was a guy who would come in I opened on Saturdays at Premiere and every single Saturday he would come in rent some anal pornography and tell me about how the Mothman lived in his yard and how he was having these memory losses you know he'd wake up in his backyard you know having peed his pants and no idea what happened and how the mothman was watching him through the window and like describing you know his gigantic wingspan and his red eyes and all this stuff and that was he was my you know my eccentric guy who would come in on saturdays and i just kind of nod and go like push the movie across the counter and go well see you next saturday (laughs) one day he um he was you know doing his weekly kind of rant to me and he goes yeah my kids want to put me away they don't believe me they don't believe that the mothman's there they 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 want they want to put me away and that was the last time i ever saw him hmm. do you think the mothman got him i think his kids probably put him away oh. <laughs> poor guy <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I will say that that weird customers is one of the underrated benefits of working at a video store. Mm-hmm. Uh, just get, getting your regular, getting your weekly visit from a total weirdo is uh, definitely a good time. Well, you know, I mean, we talk about people hanging around. A lot of lonely people will hang around video stores because it's a captive audience and someone to talk to. Totally. Um, so, uh, what do we think the future is? There a future for video stores? Well, what I think is that, um, you know, we're seeing some of these smaller video stores die off and a few couple of video stores on the West Coast, Scarecrow Video in Seattle and then Vidiots in L.A. recently um, filed for nonprofit status and became nonprofits. And now they're working on a membership system where people pay in to the nonprofit and that's how those stores are surviving. And I think that is you're going to have a small handful of basically nonprofit museums, you know, functional museums to the video store that are um, something like the New Beverly, also in L.A., which is owned by Quentin Tarantino. And he just, you know, spends all the money from all the movies he's made running the video store or the, excuse me, the movie theater. I think they're, that that's more like what you're going to see. You're going to see a few small specialty places with big libraries and big cities that are kind of kept alive by wealthy patrons. Yeah, I, I don't think there's a... I mean, there hasn't been a future for video stores as a business for a long time. Um, I think for the few that are remaining, yeah, I think the the best option is a library model mm-hmm. and a nonprofit model. And But I feel like that's still catering to an older audience that's kind of used to video stores. And I really do think that there are a lot of things about video stores that are very good for a budding cinephile, a younger mm-hmm. person, right? Uh, but in, in many cases, we're talking about people who don't have DVD or Blu-ray players, you know? That's true. Um, and so, you know, you think about what can... Because I, I, I do think that physical media is often... Uh, there's a lot to be said for it. Um, there, And especially with, you know, a good Blu-ray, good DVD how you know the just how how spoiled we were like 15 years ago by just having loads of features and directors commentaries um mm-hmm. it, it's strange that that you know that a, suddenly there was all of this stuff loaded into a dvd and then basically we switched to streaming and some of it is coming back like netflix 
put up all of this extra stuff for the Irishman. Um, but it's it's special. It's on a case by case basis. Yeah. Cr- so I guess if if I'm imagining, you know, like if I if I got to run my own video store nonprofit. You know, I'd probably set up some kind of viewing environment and have some kind of, uh, you know, fulfill some 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 uh, you know some educational capacity. You know, a place where uh, that could have some kind of you know regular groups um, or or even free classes, that kind of thing. Um, because I I do think that the that a video store. In theory, if it, if video stores can survive, it's as part it's you know is part of a more complex organization. Yeah, and you know physical media. From working in video stores, I do believe that you know you need to hang on to some physical media, and I definitely I don't you know throw away DVDs or anything like that because of working in a video store and knowing like the fact of having that catalog. It feels like preserving history a little bit, and there are a lot of things that are not available on streaming. You know, it's that's the reality. Yeah, um, is that we are we uh, and this happens every time there's a major format change. I mean, there are movies that never made the transition onto VHS. There are movies that never made the, the transition from VHS onto DVD. And I think we're losing a lot of stuff um, to, uh, to, to the streaming revolution, one might say. I think there, there are movies that will never make the transition from physical media onto a streaming platform. So I think there is some value in Hoarders, hoarders, listen, uh, I am going to enable you and say there is some value to holding on to your physical media. That's all we've got for you this week. Please be sure to check out uh, Death of a Video Store. That's the article by our special guest, Ignati Vishnevetsky. Thank you, Ignati, for coming on. Always a delight. And please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Film Club wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Film Club was hosted by me, Alex Dowd, and by Katie Reif. It was produced and edited by Carl Blumberg. Our sound mixer and finishing editor is Seth Hafer. And our motion graphics designer is Julie Mullins. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Thanks for listening. Bye.